Good morning. It is good to be with you. Uh, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Hebrews 1, 5 through 14. Uh, it wasn't the Feast of Zion, but we feasted in our house last night as part of uh, the dinner auctions. We did that. So I see Jeff's here. Uh, we enjoyed that tremendously, and um, we want to just thank you all so much for supporting the St. Louis mission trip. And for those of you that won the auction, you'll be hearing from Daniel this week about that. But back to our book of Hebrews, Robert, Thad, and I are doing something a little different. That is, we're all preaching through the book of Hebrews, and so we're very excited about that. We're excited to look at and examine the rich theology which is in this book. And so this, our text this morning is Hebrews 1, 5 through 14. Let us read it. This is the Word of God. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain they will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let us pray. Lord, you speak to us through your word. And would you speak to us this morning and show us your son, Jesus Christ. May it encourage and refresh our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, you know Six Flags in Atlanta. Well, I've been there many times. And one time I went there with my family, and I was, I don't know, 12, 14, somewhere in there. And you know the log flume ride? It's a staple at a lot of parks. Um, I don't know what they call it, but it's the log flume everywhere. It's a, just a simple ride. You go up, you ride around a little like river, watery thing, and then you go down the waterfall, and you hit the bottom, and it splashes, and everybody gets wet, right? It's so much fun, especially on a hot day. But they've got that observation deck so that when the, the rod hits the water, it splashes and everybody on the uh, deck gets wet. Well, being a 14-year-old, I'm like, let's go get wet. I'm sure my parents are like, oh, goodness gracious. But uh, we're there, I'm there, and I'm at the observation deck, and it comes down, it hits, and just water everywhere. It was a lot. It was very powerful. And I noticed that my sunglasses were missing. I couldn't find them. And I'm looking around everywhere, and there's so many people. And I'm like, they're going to step on it or steal them. I don't know what's going to happen. But I'm looking around, 
and I can't find my sunglasses, and I think my parents are going to kill me. Well, I, I, I don't know what happened, but I'm like, oh, no. And there they were. They were on my face the whole time. <laughs> I don't know how, I, how that happened, but it happened. And I just wasn't, they were there the whole time, if I'd have just known where to look. And the author of Hebrews is saying that about Jesus in the Old Testament. He was there the whole time. You just need to look. And we need to listen to the, his message this morning. This, this Christian message has been there the whole time. You see, Christ is not something that God's like, you know what? They can't do it. Let's, let's throw a Savior into the mix. No, Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is not something new or different. And Jesus himself shows us this in Luke 24. Um, Luke 24, verses 27 and 44. Now, Luke 24 is the, the well-known road to Emmaus. Two disciples who have seen Jesus, who have heard of the resurrection, but don't know what to make of it and not sure it's true. Jesus comes alongside them on this journey, and they don't recognize Jesus. And so they just start talking to him, like, hey, what's up? And then he starts teaching them, and this is what he taught them. Verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus didn't need a New Testament to tell them about himself. He could do it from the Old And again in verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus, even before he ascended into heaven, said, it's all about me. It's all been leading up to this moment. And this is important because the audience that the author is writing to is mostly Jewish. And given the, this, the whole argumentation of this letter, but especially our passage, they have to be considering leaving the faith, going back to their Jewish roots and heritage. And that's why the author uses <clears throat> these seven Old Testament quotes, just one right after the other. He's linking them together. And this is called, this is the fun word, a hooray, hey Roz, hey Roz. Or stringing pearls. They're stringing pearls. That is, they're putting one right after the other, right? He's linking them together. And he's using Old Testament quotes. Why? Because the author as well as his audience, views Scripture, the Old Testament, as God's Word, and therefore authoritative. And so he can use the Old Testament to show them, look, if you're going to go back, let's remember what you're going back to is pointing towards what we're teaching now. So they're wrestling with their faith. They're not mature. In Hebrews 5, what does he say about them? 5.12. The word, that's 412, don't read that one. Um, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. And so they're immature in their faith. 
They need to be reminded again of the simple things. And they, they hold to this authority of Scripture, which they both engage in, and that's why this is an effective argument to his audience. That they needed to hear and listen to the message, not only of Christ, which they should, but also of the Old Testament. But why are they tempted to listen, or why are they tempted to leave the faith? Why are they tempted to go back? It's because they're listening to the wrong message. They've probably heard some of their Jewish brethren talk about Christianity as, as, as a wrong thing. They may have heard the Pharisees talk about you, we need to do these things and then God will bless us, a, a legalism of sorts. Or that the Pharisees and others look to the Old Testament as the end of this message, not the beginning of the message. That is, is that we will always be sacrificing, we will always be this way, there will be no changes which is a misreading of the Old Testament. And so they're tempted to go back because they're listening to the wrong message. But they're also listening to the message of the world. You see, the people in the book of Hebrews are suffering for their faith. And the question might be, why, if, if, I, if I'm suffering for my faith, if I lose the faith bit, maybe I also lose the suffering bit. And so they're hearing the message of the world saying, you personal peace comfort, affluence, these are the things you really want and need. And if religion's not doing it for you, leave it behind. That's the message of the world. But we too can listen to the wrong message, can't we? We can be uh, seduced to, to believe and to hear what the world is saying. That there is, for example, like there is no truth. It's our truth or your truth, but there is no the truth. And your truth is the only truth, but that's a lie. But we can also listen to messages about comfort and peace, saying whatever it takes for me to get comfort and peace, that's what I will do. But our text is telling us that God is speaking to us about his son. Look at verses 5. Um, verse 5, for which of the angels did God ever say? Verse 6, um, he says. Verse 7, he says. Verse 8, he says. Verse 13, has he ever said? Right? God is speaking, speaking, speaking in this text. And he is telling us what? To listen to his son. To hear the message of salvation. Which is found only in Christ. It's the true message of salvation. And it's found only in Christ. Nothing else can satisfy. But why should we hear this message? Why should we believe it? We should believe it because Jesus is the messenger. Jesus is the messenger. The author is laying out his seven texts here, showing the superiority of Christ to the angels. And because Jesus is superior, he should be believed over the angels. Now, some of you may be aware 
that I work also as a real estate appraiser. And in appraisals, we do what's called the sales comparison approach. And it's just that, you compare sales. And it's an approach to value, so there you go. Now you're all ready to be appraisers. But the idea is you take a house and then you compare another one to it. So if this house is uh, good quality, with a lot of square footage, brand new, and then this house is very old, very small, and not a lot of land, is it gonna be worth as much as this one? No, right? That's the general idea. And so what he's gonna do is he's gonna say, look, here's Jesus, let's compare the angels to him, okay? And which one is superior? So in this appraisal of Jesus, the author is going to give us really three ways through these seven verses. And they, they're sort of couplets. The first two verses go together, uh, then the next two, then the next two, and then the last one is a capstone, if you will. So what do the first two verses show us? Well, he's going to quote Psalm 2-7, which is a psalm uh, of God speaking about the king of Israel, later to be Jesus, foretold. And that the nations, they rage against you, but you're going to subdue them. And he says in that psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And those of you that have been in the David Sunday School class will recognize this verse. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is the Davidic covenant in one verse. That is that God has promised David that there will always be a son of David on the throne of Israel. And that is true. And Jesus is this son who is eternally on the throne. But what's interesting about these two is what links them is that it talks about Jesus being the son of the father. And so we have here this unique relationship of God, of Jesus rather, as the son of God to his father God, right? Jesus has a unique relationship to the Father. Whereas the, the angels are messengers, which we'll see. Then the second couplet talks about what the angels do. And again, when he brings their firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now there's some debate here about which verse this is taken from. You really have two choices, and the commentator I was reading, leaned on Deuteronomy 32.43, which is a verse, um, as Moses has brought Israel out of Egypt, this is how he summarized how this verse works here. In the past, brought, God brought his own people out of the desert into the promised land of Canaan. Now he has brought Christ out of death into the glory of the heavenly assembly. That is, as he enters heaven after the ascension, he is the firstborn of the recreation. The angels welcome him into heaven with, with praise and glory and worship. That's the angel's job, is to worship him. Now, I'm going to take a little excursus here. I probably shouldn't, but here we go. Excursus is like a rabbit trail, okay? So this is sort of related, but not really. But it's going to be important. It's laying groundwork for the rest of our work in Hebrews. Because what is he quoting here? And why, is it, why can't they find what he's quoting? Part of it is 
Well, mostly because the author of Hebrews and the vast majority of Old Testament quotes in the New Testament come from the Septuagint. Now, what is the Septuagint, you ask? Good question. You're, you're good students. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So as you, you can imagine, as the world got Hellenized, Jews were like, we can't read the, our scriptures. So they're like, aha, we'll translate it. So they translated it, and now they have the Septuagint. And that's where most of the quotes come from in, in, the, Bible, in the New Testament. When they're quoting the Old Testament, it's from the Septuagint translation. And that's why we have... So if you go read Deuteronomy 32, 43, you're not going to read these exact words. Because the, when we translate, when the ESV Bible translate the Old Testament, they translate not the Septuagint, but the, the Hebrew. And so language being what it is, you might get a different wording or, or things. Okay? So when you go read that, it'll say, bow to him, all you gods. Bow down to him. Bow down. That's finish that word. Bow down to him, all you gods. But the word for gods is also a word used of angels, and you have to depend on the context. So that's, that's where we go. Okay? So this is, this is how the Bible has come to be. All right, excursus over. We're back now. <clears throat> Fun facts. Uh, and then Psalm 104 here um, in verse 7. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And so um, their description as winds and flames of fire says that they're, they're pretty awesome beings, right? Like this isn't, they're not just slugs here. We're not Jesus is better than a slug, no. They're, they're, um, they're something great and amazing. And Jesus is better yet still. It's sort of like if I come to you this morning and say, hey, I played basketball yesterday. And you're like, did you win? I'm like, yeah, I did. And you're like, who'd you play? I was like a six-year-old. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, whatever. Uh, but if I said, who, you ask, who did I play? And I said, I beat Michael Jordan, right? You'd be like, oh, okay. That's something, right? That is something. Beating a six-year-old isn't something. Beating Michael Jordan is something. Jesus being better than the angels is something. All right, because the angels themselves are mighty uh, uh, creatures. When they show up, what do people? What do they say? Have to say, "Do not fear," right? And Jesus is better yet still than the angels. And then in uh, verse eight, but of the son, he says, "Your this is a very interesting. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever." The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. And that's from Psalm 45, okay, verses 6 and 7. Now, what is interesting about Psalm 45, and I have not really known about this until I studied this passage. It's a royal psalm. Sort of from the perspective of the bride saying, you are the most handsome of men and you're, you're sit on the throne, O king. And then she says this, right? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. She just changes, like, why is she calling the king God? And, and then she 
trans, you know, and you know that she's calling the king God because in the next verse, you have loved righteousness and hated witness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. And so you have God being anointed by God in the Old Testament. It's wild. It's wild. So this is really like God has laid the foundation this whole way through, right? He's saying that. And, and the author of Hebrews is picking up on that, right? Jesus is the royal son of God who is uh, upright and been anointed by God. And then in verse 10, we have Psalm 102 quoted. And this shows the Son's decisive superiority in creation and the consummation of the universe. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Saying, He created the world, and He'll be there when it ends. They will perish, that is, the heavens. But you remain. They will all wear out like garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But what about the Son? What about the Lord? But you are the same. And your years will have no end. And so we see here that Jesus is the eternal conquering King. With a unique relationship to the Father. And the next verse is Psalm 110 quoted in verse 13 of our text. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet? Sit at my right hand until your enemies become your servants. Now, this is, this is an interesting fact. This Psalm, Psalm 110, verse 1, is the most quoted passage in the New Testament. Now, why is that? Because it's, it's basically saying the Old Testament, all of it is pointed towards the victory Christ will win. When even death itself serves Christ. Because he died and rose again and conquered it. He has conquered every conceivable enemy. And so we see that the author of Hebrews has laid out his case. Jesus is superior to the angels. He is the messenger we should be listening to. He is the one who brings the message we need to hear. He is the one, only one, who, when we are hurting, weak, and doubting, can heal our pain can strengthen our weakness and encourage our hearts. Look at Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Again, he is great, mighty. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Okay. Jesus is great and awesome and wonderful and mighty. He has conquered his enemies. He is the eternal victorious son. What do we do with that? Verse 16. Let us then draw 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive a chiding and a yelling at. No, what does it say? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is the messenger who knows everything about us and stands ready to welcome you into his arms with full of grace and truth. In your time of need, you turn to him because he is the eternal victorious son, ready to help and give aid. No one else can. He will not fail. He will not let us down. And so if Jesus is the messenger, what is the message? Well, the message is Jesus. Jesus is the message. Look at verse 14, talking about the role of angels as they, they are to worship and serve Jesus, right? Again, the comparison, but here they are. They, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? You see, the message that Jesus brings is salvation, but it's a message about himself and what he has done. Look at verses, or chapter 1, verse 3. Of Hebrews, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has made a purification for sins. And then in the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This is a great salvation. Why is it such a great salvation? Because Jesus is the one providing it. If you believe the Pharisees, you have to provide your salvation by obeying the law. That's a very light gloss, but it's more technical than that. But that's the general theme. Earn your own salvation. But Jesus offers us salvation because he has won it. It's about him. He has done it all. Now, here's the question. You might be asking yourself, why are we comparing Jesus to the angels? Where does this come from? Why do we launch into comparing Jesus to angels in this book? Well, it's because um, the Jews believed, and it's, there is some biblical support for this, that the angels themselves were bringing much of the law and the, the word to the prophets. Okay, That the angels were mediators of the word of God to the prophets of God. Does that, does that make sense? So that they're involved in this process. So look at chapter 2, verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. The angel of the message proved to be reliable, right? That is the law and the prophets. It's reliable. And then in uh, Acts 7, we see this, uh, 7.53 you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So there's this thought that the angels delivered the law in some way. That's not really described in the Old Testament per se, but it makes its way into the New Testament as this belief that the angels have done that. And so the Old Testament audience apparently wants to cling on to the bare Old Testament. The bare thoughts about what the Old Testament or the Old Covenant were. 
not willing to hear what the final prophet of God is saying. And so this, this is really a dialogue um, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And so what is the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? Does anybody know? Don't, don't answer, but just think about it. What's the difference? The difference is Jesus. The, the, the actual coming, dying, and rising again of Jesus Christ. You see, the Old Covenant, what does it do? It looks forward to that event. Everything about it points forward to that event. And what does the New Covenant do? It looks back to that event. Right? It, it's recounting and remembering Jesus, the Son of God, come to live, die, and rise again. And that is the message. That is the message that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come to bring the true and great salvation. But it's only through Him. And Hebrews itself kind of highlights what the difference is between the Old and New Covenants. If you look at Hebrews 10, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament is but a shadow pointing towards the true realities. And this, is, this imagery and all of this is going to be laid out in the book. But here we see Jesus is the message. And if this is true, then it is of the best news. Because we can come to him in our weaknesses. Because what does he come to bring? Salvation. Not guilt, not shame. But salvation and forgiveness from sin. He can welcome us into his arms. And so that means that all of our lives need to be Christ-centered. Christ-centered because it's all about Jesus. HBC is Christ-centered. I mean, it's on our sign anyways. I don't know if y'all can see back there. Y'all look back there. You can't see what I'm saying. Christ-centered, right on the sign. Um, it's Christ-centered. This is a, this, why? Because it's all about Jesus, okay? It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. Um, AHG, uh, Debbie shared, what, they wanted a Christ-centered ministry for girls. Bryan College, do you know what their tagline is? Christ above all. Covenant College, in all things, Christ preeminent. Lee University, Christ-centered. They get it. They get it. What does it mean for our lives to be Christ-centered? It means we listen to his message and apply it to every area of our lives. You know, the way we handle uh, money, the way we deal with our family and friends, the way we seek attention for those, especially youth out there who, who just want to be noticed. How do you seek attention? Is it Christ-centered? It's the way we treat others. Is it Christ-centered? The way we speak, is it Christ-centered? And all of this done, not in our power, but in his power, which he has provided through his resurrection. Because he is full of truth and grace. And he calls us to do the same. And so when we sin, and we will, we trust Christ. 
not ourselves, for forgiveness. And so we see that Jesus is the eternal conquering son. What does he do with that power and glory? What does he do? He lays down his life for rebellious people so that he might become the way of salvation for them. Let us then listen to his message of truth and grace and nothing else. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and thank you for your word, which proclaims your son, Jesus Christ. And may we always and ever look to him. May our lives be centered on him. And when we fail, let us turn to him because he offers grace and hope and help in the time of need. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.